Matthew 26, beginning at verse 57. And they that had taken Jesus led him away to the house of Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. But Peter followed him afar off, unto the court of the high priest, and entered in and sat with the officers to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council sought false witness against Jesus, that they might put him to death. And they found it not, though many false witnesses came. But afterward came two and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said unto him, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witness against thee? But Jesus held his peace. And the high priest said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God, that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus saith unto him, Thou hast said. Nevertheless, I say unto you, Henceforth ye shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his garment, saying, He hath spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, now ye have heard the blasphemy. What think ye? They answered and said, He is worthy of death. Then did they spit in his face and buffet him, and some smote him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy unto us, thou Christ, who is he that struck thee? Now Peter was sitting without in the court, and a maid came unto him, saying, Thou also wast with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied before them all, saying, I know not what thou sayest. And when he was gone out into the porch, another maid saw him, saith unto them that were there, This man also was with Jesus the Nazarene. And again he denied with an oath, I know not the man. And after a little while they that stood by came and said to Peter, Of a truth thou also art one of them, for thy speech bereath thee. Then began he to curse and to swear, I know not the man. And straightway the cock crew. And Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said, Before the cock crow thou shalt deny me thrice. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now when morning was come, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him up to Pilate the governor. Then Judas, which betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself and brought back the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned in that I betrayed innocent blood. But they said, What is that to, what is that to us? See thou to it. And he cast down the pieces of silver into the sanctuary and departed, and he went away and hanged himself. And the chief priests took the pieces of silver and said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is the price of blood. And they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Wherefore, that field was called the field of blood unto this day. 
Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him that was priced, whom certain of the children of Israel did price, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord appointed me. Thank you very much. Now you will remember that we have dealt um, quite uh, with quite an amount of this last section, the trial of the king before the Sanhedrin. You will find it in the notes, and therefore I am not going to go back over um, last week's study, although in actual fact <coughs> we are um, more or less starting halfway. We're just going to take up the threads and go straight on. Um, you will remember that <coughs> the Lord's um, uh, trials were divided, uh, he, he, the legal side as it were, was divided into two. There was the ecclesiastical trial and there was the civil trial. The ecclesiastical trial falls into three parts, the preliminary investigation before Annas, father-in-law to the high priest, and then the unofficial and illegal session of the Sanhedrin held during the night uh, before Caiaphas, the high priest, and then the official uh, session of the Sanhedrin held just after daybreak in order to legalize the illegal proceedings and verdict of the unofficial session. Um, now, Matthew doesn't deal at all, he doesn't even mention the preliminary hearing under um, uh, Annas. Um, he um, very briefly uh, mentions the official session of the Sanhedrin, and he dwells at some length upon the unofficial uh, uh, session. Well, now we've dealt with that. And um, where I want to take things up tonight is really the spiritual side of it. We saw how the Lord was brought to trial. We have heard the, um, we've seen how false testimony, uh, we've seen how the sole objective of this, uh, of all these court uh, hearings was to secure evidence uh, upon which they could pass the death sentence. There was no justice in it. Uh, they, they only wanted it in order to get evidence by hook or by crook in order to pass the death sentence upon Christ. Uh, in order to secure that evidence, they um, sought false testimony from false witnesses, but unfortunately it was such a hastily convened session um, that uh, they had not had time to sort of work things out before, and therefore under questioning and examination none of the testimony of the witnesses tallied. And as this was one of the strongest points in Jewish law, that only in the mouth of two witnesses could a thing be established, everything fell through until finally two witnesses came forward who said that they had heard Christ say I will destroy this temple in uh, I will destroy this temple and in three days will build it again 
when the Lord was asked about this, he remained silent. And uh, it was then that the high priest decided to change his tactics and brought out uh, the most serious charge of all and placing Christ on the most solemn oath possible to place a person on, uh, he compelled him to answer. Was he the Messiah, the Son of God? Of course, it was the second claim that was so grave in the eyes of the Sanhedrin. The first, there were many, many false messiahs that wasn't considered to be uh, so terrible but the second was a very grave crime because it it involved the person in blasphemy it was the only point at which the Lord spoke he had maintained a complete silence throughout the hearing but at this point he quietly and simply affirmed all that was needed. Now we've seen all that. Now in this travesty of justice, this horrible caricature of all that is righteous and true, we see the king in the hands of men. And mark you, men who are supposed to know and represent the living God. These were not lawless men. These were not Gentile men. These were not men who made no claim to know God or to be the oracles of the living God, to know the covenant of God and the promises of God. These, uh, these were men who, in fact, did claim uh, to know God, to be the custodians of the oracles of God, to be the covenant people of God, uh, and to represent him in this um, world. And in this court scene, far more important than the civil trial, we see, and this is why Matthew dwells upon it, you will remember that Matthew's gospel supremely has been at pains to point out to us that this Christ is the Messiah, this Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the long-promised, Messiah. He is the son of David. He is the king whom God has promised to his covenant people. And that's why Matthew dwells on the unofficial session of the Sanhedrin. Uh, we see the long-awaited Messiah. The one who, upon whom the all the hopes and aspirations of the Jewish people for centuries have centered. The one who was the very fulfillment of their long history. We see this 
Messiah standing before the supreme ruling body of Jewry. It was indeed the most historic occasion in the long history of the Jewish people. Unknown to them, before them, before their eyes, in their hearing, was the Messiah and the King. He has come finally unto his own. And now they that were his own were to officially and completely reject him. And the irony it was, it was upon the very point of his being Messiah that they rejected him at least legally it was upon this point that they not only rejected him but convicted him and passed the sentence of death for blasphemy A little later on, as we shall see, in the civil trial of the king, we see him before the Roman governor. There the Jews changed their tactics. The Sanhedrin changed their tactics. No longer any talk about Messiah. Then they say, he has set himself up as king. Well, however we look at it, the fact is that here, and this is stunning, uh, occasion we see the long awaited and anticipated Messiah standing before the supreme ruling legislative authoritative body in Jewry not only in the homeland of Judea but wherever there were Jews throughout the known world it is an incredible scene that is presented to our eyes. Venerable, white-haired patriarchs, learned doctors of the law, high ecclesiastical dignitaries, cover his face with spittle and punch him about all over the place with their blow, slapping his face and jeering at him. Tell us, Messiah, who was, what is the name of the one who's just slapped you? It is an incredible thing to think of a few young ruffians. Later on, we find out that the temple guards more or less took it into their heads to follow suit and do the same thing. We can excuse them to a certain extent. They were probably young and virile and full of animal spirits. But these old white-haired gentlemen, surely it is a scene which is indescribable and incredible. That they could be, they could be in such a paroxysm of rage 
such uncontrollable fury that they lose their dignity and behave like savages. Yet in reality, and mark this, it is not they who judge him, but he who judges them. They are the ones who stand condemned by the whole world at the bar of history, judged at the bar of history. I think the whole world is united, even those who do not believe in the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, in condemning the judges, so-called, who judged him. History has passed its verdict upon them. By his silence, deafening, by his one simple, direct, yet profound affirmation, thou hast said so. I am the Messiah and the Son of God. By his majestic dignity, shining through and rising above their foul ill-treatment, the uh, judged one became the judge and the judges became the judged ones. Now I am not suggesting to you that one day the Lord Jesus will judge them from his throne of glory. I am suggesting to you this evening that in that very court session he became the judge and they became the judged ones. He turned the table as we shall see, he did this exactly the same with the Roman governor. He started off as the judge and ended up as the judged one. Here you've got the king again in all his royal majesty. Matthew paints for us this wonderful picture of the Lord Jesus Christ turning everything. No fluster, no panic, no unseemly energy or machinations, just by his very presence, turning everything to good account. In truth, it was they who were arraigned, not he. And I think we see all of this summed up in the verse uh, 64, um, verse 64 in chapter 26, where Jesus said to the high priest, you have said so, but I tell you, hereafter 
you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. I say that all that I have just said is summed up in that one verse and in the sentence, hereafter you will see. Hereafter you will see. What words? What words? Quiet, confident words spoken in absolute faith and conviction by the king. Hereafter you will see the Son of Man. How did the high priest hereafter see the Son of Man? Well, it is absolutely true that even if he blinded himself to the Son of Man then and thereafter, he certainly will see him coming in the clouds and at the right hand of the power on high. It's true. But I would like to say that I believe poor Caiaphas, he had uh, time in his evil life to rule the day that ever he met Christ. You will remember in the book of Acts how later those poor men, they spend their time uh, scratching their heads. What shall we do? What shall we do? They get the apostle before them. They say, you have filled Jerusalem with this man's teaching. Everywhere we hear his name. Hereafter you shall see the Son of Man. They thought they'd, they'd, they'd crucified him. They thought they'd finished him. They thought they'd passed the verdict. They thought they'd flung him out. A bit of human debris. On the dung heap. That's the end of him. His disillusioned disciples will simply be scattered. And like all these other false messiahs. The thing will die a natural death. It didn't. It filled Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, even Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Hereafter you will see. And the more that they did, and the more sessions they convened to scratch their heads and decide what they should do, the more impossible it became to control this Christ whom they had crucified. They must have felt, if it doesn't sound humorously irreverent, they must have felt haunted. Haunted. Hereafter you will see the Son of Man. God, it was really, we would say now, God was going to declare Jesus as the Messiah and as the Son of God and as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and as the Judge of the whole earth by his resurrection from the dead and by his ascension to the right hand of the majesty on high. Huh. Poor Caiaphas. We should feel very sorry for him. 
He had a miserable life after that and he's got an even more miserable future for all eternity. Well, that's the trial. Then Matthew uh, draws our attention to two people. Now I have said before that one of the characteristics of Matthew's style um, is his love of comparison. All the way through his gospel he compares people. All the time he puts them side by side and says, look, here are two different, two different attitudes, two different ways of doing things. Two. And here he does it again. He takes, he draws our attention to two people, Peter and Judas. And whilst all these events have been taking place, something has been happening that is going to leave its mark for all eternity upon Peter and upon Judas. Now, Peter had been sitting in the courtyard of the high priest's palace warming himself by the open fire. Now Jerusalem is about 2,400 feet high and it gets quite cold at night. Uh, that might, uh, for those of you who know, might wonder why do they have an open fire uh, in, in the Middle East. Uh, and at Passover in the Easter it still gets quite cold at night. There can be something of, of a chill at night. So there was a fire there. And um, John tells us that he who was a friend, his family was a with the high priestly family, uh, he got in um, quite easily uh, into the high priestly palace, the high priest palace, and, and then when he got inside, uh, he, he managed to get Peter in. He spoke to the maid on the door, and she let Peter in. Uh, that's, we're told, John tells us how Peter got in. Matthew only tells us that he was there. I think it's Mark who tells us he was warming himself by the fire. Um, he was warming himself, and mark you this, he was, he was warming himself um, along with the guards and the others who had arrested Christ. What a strange crowd. There they were, the guards and the others who had arrested Christ, all talking about it, talking about how they, those eleven miserable apostles had fled like frightened rabbits and all the rest of it. And there was Peter, along with them, warming his hands. He must have been in a terrible state of mind. Uh, there is a little indication of it. It's rather a sad little indication. It's in verse 58. It says, But Peter followed him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Very sad, isn't it? To see the end the thought about it to see the end he was in a terrible state of mind uh, he he'd followed a distance and now he was inside and he was there just to see the end during the course of about three hours peter was challenged three times as to whether he was not one of christ's disciples now when you read the account in all the Gospels, you get the feeling that it happened one after another. First the maid came, and, and then another came almost immediately, and then others all joined in, but it's not so. It was over three hours. That will help you to understand some of the differences in the accounts in the um, uh, four Gospels. 
Um, according to Matthew, he was challenged first by the maid who kept the door and let him in. She evidently wondered a little, and later she went up to him at the fire and she said, Aren't you also one of his disciples? Then, a little later, he was challenged by another maid. One of the other Gospels tells us it was by the porch. He went out after this to the gateway, to the porch. And another maid saw him there, and she challenged him there. And uh, then, a little later, he was challenged by a number of the bystanders, those who were round about. Now, you've got that in the verses 58 and 69 to 73. We won't read them, but you can. But I do want you to note one little thing. In verse 69, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. Have you ever noticed the word also? You know, that's an indication. Of that. You were also. Does it mean that she'd asked John or someone had asked John and he said, I am? We don't know. We're not told that John denied the Lord here. It is interesting. You were also. Now, the whole force of it is that there is someone else around who's one of his disciples. You're also one of his disciples. There is a... There, there are some, there's some evidence at any rate to suggest that Judas was there too. In other words, in all probability, we had, we've got three of the disciples uh, somewhere around in the courtyard or in the buildings of the high priest's palace. You were also. Well, we can't be sure, but it may well be an indication of John's presence and possibly of Judas's also. It would seem that when we take all the accounts of this incident together, that after Peter had been first challenged by that maid who kept the door, on which all agree, his denial provoked uh, uh, something of a stir. Uh, remember, as we shall see, Peter didn't um, quietly deny. He publicly and vehemently denied. And it evidently caused quite a stir and provoked quite... Uh, uh, a lot of questions from others. Now this will explain why if you look through the others you will find a number of other uh, that seem to have questions as well. Matthew tells us that the third time it was the bystanders. John tells us that it was a kinsman of Mal Malchus whose ear had been cut off and, and so on. It seems that there was a lot of questioning over those three hours. What we do know is that Peter three times denied Lord. You will find those other uh, accounts in Luke chapter 22 from verse 55 to 63 and John chapter 18 verse 15 to 18 and 25 to 27. When first challenged, Peter publicly and vehemently denied any knowledge of the matter at all didn't actually deny Christ the first time. He just denied any knowledge of the matter. Uh, it's in verse 70. Verse 70. And in the Revised Standard Version, it says, I do not know what you mean. 
I do not know what you mean. He denied any knowledge of the thing at all, as if he was completely ignorant as to whether there was even such a person called Jesus the Galilean. Do not know what you mean. I want you also to note that it was before them all. Before them all. So it wasn't as sometimes we imagine a quiet sort of, you know, I've heard it said by some great preachers uh, that uh, there was Peter, a little sort of barmaid, uh, comes up and sort of uh, uh, says something and, and Peter crumbles in front of her and says, I don't know. I don't know him. And it isn't so. Uh, he, it was before them all that he uh, um, denied. It was a quite public and uh, vehement uh, uh, denial of any knowledge uh, uh, concerning this matter. When challenged again, a little later, uh, he became heated and dogmatic and denied on oath. Now, for a Jew to use an oath was a very, very serious matter. Not so much because, uh, well, we don't really use those very much uh, in public, in, in, in sort of general intercourse, social intercourse. But for a Jew to use an oath was a very serious matter. He denied on oath that he even knew the man. He got quite dogmatic and heated about it. And he said, uh, uh, he, he, he said as it were, well, we don't know what the oath was. He might have said, I swear by the altar in the temple. Or he might have said, um, I, 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 I swear by the temple. Or he may have said, I swear by heaven. But he swore on oath. It was on oath that he said, I do not know the man. When challenged for the last time, he broke into curses, declaring with an oath, I do not know the man. Now, what does it mean he broke into curses? It doesn't mean he swore, as some people think. When you see the word, he swore, in the modern versions, it doesn't mean, as you and I sometimes understand it, but it means that he called upon himself all the most terrible possible curses imaginable. Things like that is, if he had children, they should die of cancerous deaths. That he himself would wither up and die. That that his uh, father should have his bones dug up and desecrated, and all this kind of thing, calling curses down upon himself, upon his seed, upon his seed, seed, all the way down. That's exactly what it means. Simple as that. He called down curses, not just one curse, but curse after curse in order to prove before them all that, that what he was saying was absolute truth. And then, on an oath, and I reckon that the last oath was probably on the unmentionable name of Jehovah. Probably. Otherwise it wouldn't seem to have much meaning if he didn't go to the most solemn oath known in jury. The unmentionable name of the living God. And then he says, I do not know the man. How cold and distant the words seem. Here is a man whose lips have said, 
Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is an aside, but um, I wonder where the high priest got his information. Art thou, he said, the Christ, the Son of God? Was it some garbled version passed on to him about what Peter himself had said? I don't know. It's interesting though, isn't it? Those lips had once said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Those lips had said only a little while, uh, well, some while before they'd once said, You remember, Lord, is it thee? Call to me that I come unto thee. Words of warmth and affection and of intimate, of an intimate bond. A little while before he'd said, Lord, Though all the others deny thee and forsake thee, I will not, even unto death. Lord, now it's not Christ, or Lord, or Master. It is, listen, I do not know the man. Cold, distant, detached words. Are you capable of saying that of your master and Lord? Peter was. When you think of it, it's solemn. Peter had disassociated himself from the king. I do not know the man. And he he had denied him. before all. Nevertheless, there is a lesson for us, and this is the lesson I want to underline tonight, and I wish that all were here, every single one in this part of God's family, and especially those who are young in the law, those who are going through a trying time, oh, I wish every one of them was here. Let us never forget that despite Peter's breakdown and denial, he loved the Lord truly. Now never forget that and be done with any other kind of nonsense that suggests that in the moment of his breakdown and so on, he hated the Lord or loathed him. Never! Even when his faith, he, he failed and, 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 and everything broke down and he denied his Lord. He still loved him. Deep down in his heart. Everything else failed in Peter. Everything else failed. His faith in himself. His faith in the others. He'd seen them run off like frightened rabbits, just like himself. And listen, his faith in what he conceived to be the character and the work of Christ. When I say the character, I mean the character of the work of Christ. What he conceived to be the work of Christ and what he conceived to be the destiny of Christ. He had a very definite conception. 
as to what Christ's work was and what his destiny was. It failed him. All his wonderful ideas, his wonderful ideals, they had been wrecked as by an earthquake. Everything failed. But deeper than all the ruins, uh, the, the ruins of his self-made spiritual life, there was a true faith in the person of Christ. It may have been like a grain of mustard seed, but it was there. Now, where do I get that from? Well, I'll tell you. It was for that that Christ prayed. You turn to Luke... <laughs> And chapter 22 and verse 31 and we read these words Simon, Simon, behold Satan asked to have you that he might sift you as wheat but I made supplication for thee or I prayed for thee that thy faith fail not now listen to what the Lord says. And do thou, when once thou hast turned again, establish thy brethren. In other words, the Lord said, your faith is not going to fail. But his faith did fail. Yes, his faith in himself failed. And his faith in the others failed. And his faith in what he conceived to be the work and the destiny of Christ failed. Everything failed. But this was the whole point. This was the whole point. God had intended this. It was all false faith. It was a spurious faith. It was a self-made Christianity. And it was wrecked. But deeper than all that that came out of himself was something that was the gift of God deep down within the men. And it was true faith in the person of the Lord Jesus. Nothing else had drawn Peter into the courtyard, believe you me. And nothing else made him go out and weep bitterly. Nothing else. He had nothing to gain then, had he? The king was going to his death. The sentence of death had been passed upon him. As far as Peter was concerned, it was the end. He had no faith in a future. But he went out and wept bitterly. Because deep down within the man there was a faith in the person of Christ. He believed in him. Truly and genuinely. It was that that Christ had prayed for. And it was that, listen dear child of God, that the devil could not destroy. Oh, he destroyed everything else. But as poor as C.T. Studd said, poor devil. <laughs> what had he got? He ended up with the chaff, and God ended up with the wheat. So the devil did his worst. And God came out the best. God came out with the wheat, and the devil came out with the chaff. 
The devil tried to destroy everything. He only was able to destroy what there was of Peter. But what there was of God, he couldn't touch. But I tell you something else. It was that, that faith, the person of Christ, which God took hold of in the hour of Peter's trial and drew him through. It was immediately after his third denial that the cock crowed. And Peter, remembering, went out and wept bitterly. You read that in verse 75. Now the word, he went out and wept bitterly, is interesting because it denotes a loud and bitter wailing. There was nothing quiet or refined about Peter's weeping. It was the howl of a strong man, broken and derelict, so that once the storm had seized him, it was uncontrollable, and he wailed. Of course, this word is often used of the wailing at Jewish funerals, and if you've ever heard the wailing at Jewish funerals, you'll know what I'm talking about. That was an artificial thing. But this wailing of Peter was no artificial thing. But it denotes something that is loud. Mark tells us that the cock had crowed before when Peter's uh, when uh, after Peter's first denial if you you can read that in Mark 14 verse 68 and 72 and then again so that uh, Mark tells us the cock crowed twice after the first denial and then after the third that's interesting Matthew says and Peter remembered the saying of Jesus. It is clear that when the cock crowed for the first time it didn't have any effect on Peter. It is also as clear to me that when the cock crowed for the final time it didn't fully awaken Peter. It is Luke who gives us the clue. Luke tells us that it wasn't the cock crowing that fully awakened Peter that caused him to remember what Christ had said but the brief moment when Christ looked into Peter's face you see what happened was this the, uh, the unofficial session was over the verdict had been passed Christ his face covered with spittle punched and knocked about slapped and jeered, was being taken bound from the unofficial session to where the full Sanhedrin was going to be convened just after daybreak. 
Already the first rays of light were in the sky. Uh, the horn of the Levite was being blown the temple to, to, to sound the beginning of day. And uh, as the Lord was taken, he did something. Now this is, this is, this is amazing. Luke tells us in, in, in um, Luke 22 verse 61 he says this and the Lord turned and looked upon Peter he says and immediately the cock crew and the Lord turned and looked what a scene they always say truth is not only stranger than fiction but more dramatic uh, as the Lord was taken along probably along the porticos as the, the, the light was falling on him the cock crew Peter had just denied his Lord the third time calling down curses upon himself and with the most solemn oath and as that cock crew the Lord turned only for a moment. Oh, it was a brief, transitory moment. But in that one single moment, the work was done. Peter remembered. I think it is beautiful the way Luke puts it, and the Lord turned. If he had said, and the Lord looked upon Peter, that would have been grace but that the Lord turned in all his suffering in all his bruising in all the indignity and ill treatment he suffered that he should deliberately turn to look at Peter knowing full well all that had happened to him I say that is matchless grace matchless grace he turned. It was a deliberate act. No doubt the guard pushed him on. I know anything about them. And on the Lord stumbled. But the look, the look, the guard hadn't stopped it. Now it was the king's look that reminded Peter of words fulfilled within six hours. Fulfilled. And other words hopelessly contradicted within six hours. And furthermore, it reminded him of a prayer that had been uttered by the one he had denied six hours previously. All within that law. I have often said that God can do a universe in a second. A universal value, a universe of eternal value and work God can do in a single second. And some of the greatest ministries this world has ever seen were compressed with, into a few months. Well, certainly it was here. That look spoke of an, of an undying love and a matchless 
and incomparable grace. And it was that look which broke Peter's heart. There's no doubt about that. For Luke says it was then that he went out and wept bitterly. His anguished cries and his uncontrollable grief were surely heard all over that courtyard. Surely everyone must have seen. Then I think the people who had questioned Peter must have understood the truth. He had denied his Lord, but he was one of them. If his works had denied the Lord, his anguished cries proclaimed him. Let then every true child of God in this place take comfort the first apostle to whom was given the keys of the kingdom of heaven was of the same flesh and blood as we no less and no more that he fell so deeply that he denied his Lord so vehemently and publicly, that he failed so completely, was but the evidence of God's sifting grace. God's sifting grace. For it revealed, and dear friend, if God has any ministry for you, and any place of importance for you, be sure of this, that you too will know this sifting, sooner or later. For it revealed the weakness of Peter's life foundations. They were found out. They were found out. He'd consulted with the Lord for three years. He'd taken on the phraseology. He could make the declarations and mean them. His sincerity was beyond question. But his foundations were weak. It was the sand of his, of his own nature and resources and life. Remember that if you are tempted to pass judgment on Peter. But if all that is true, then the grace of God has never shone so radiantly as in the restoration of Peter. And my dear friend, let me say this, that even if you were called to go through a trial of the kind that Peter went through, you too shall know the restoring grace of the Lord. For God never tries anyone more than he is able. And in the end, 
the devil ends up with the chaff and God ends up with the wheat and God is no respecter of quantity but only of quality and he is quite prepared to dispense with 99% of your life if you can get the 1% that represents eternal value so never judge Peter but take comfort the first apostle the first apostle was um, permitted to pass into the hands of Satan and to be sifted like wheat but if Peter was to weep his way back to God Judas was to weep his way to hell for at the same time Judas was filled with remorse now you can't escape this but Matthew is comparing these two deliberately he says Peter went out and wept bitterly he says Judas went out and hanged himself when Judas heard the Sanhedrin's verdict he had gone back to the chief priests and elders to see if he could disentangle himself disentangle himself that's all got that in verse 3 and 4 of chapter 27 they had refused to have anything to do with it what is that to us see to it yourself refused to help him they refused to help him disentangle himself they refused to put anything right they would have they would do nothing so Judas, throwing the full money for which he had sold Christ onto the temple floor, went out and committed suicide. Now that's in verse, verses 5 and 6. Peter's repentance led to restoration. Judas's remorse led to suicide. Now note in verse 3 of chapter 27. In the Revised Standard Version it says, When Judas the bet his betrayer saw that he was condemned, he repented and brought back the 30 pieces. In the American Standard Version, the Revised Version, it says, When he saw that Christ was condemned, he repented himself. The word repented is not the usual word used for repentance in the New Testament. And, and, and really means remorse or regret. And uh, has been, I think, rightly put in most of the very modern versions now as remorse. Remorse. It wasn't repentance at all. It was remorse. See the New English Bible, you say in J.B. Phillips, you say it in Rotherham, others. They use the word remorse. It's filled with remorse. Now, dear child of God, remember this. Remorse is not repentance. 
don't forget it. Remorse is not repentance. If the picture of Judas's remorse is so dark and terrible, it is only equaled by the picture of the temple authorities. They were meant to represent truth, righteousness, justice, mercy, if I understand the Old Testament at all. They were supposed to be the mediators between God and man, to be the servants of the living God. They are for us a picture of formal and official religion, whatever label it goes by, whatever label it goes by, when it holds a form of godliness and denies the power thereof. It is a terrible picture, only equaled by Judas's remorse. Look at the, the verses. Look at verse 4. I lift out just these words. Innocent blood. What is that to us? What a picture. Listen to the words again. I have sinned in betraying innocent blood. What is that to us? They're supposed to represent truth. Righteousness. Justice. Mercy. To be the servants of the living God. Innocent blood. What is that to us? See to it yourself. And then again, verse 6, note their religious scruples about blood money. Now this, if it wasn't so terrible, would be amusing. Almost a comedy. They bend over backwards, listen to them, but the chief priest taking the pieces of silver. I like that. Judas had flung them all over the floor, whole lot. Flung the whole lot down, thirty pieces of silver. And there they were, these dignified chief priests picking all up. <laughs> Taking the pieces of silver, and I bet they made sure they'd got the thirty. They said, it is not lawful. Lawful, listen to them. It is not lawful to put them into the treasury. Since they are blood money. They knew what it was. They knew those thirty pieces of silver had bought the murder of an innocent man. They knew it. So there they are, gathering them all up, and bending over that. It's not lawful. Not lawful. We shall contaminate the uh, treasury of the Lord. We'll defile it. We shall bring a curse upon ourselves if we put this blood money in the treasury. <laughs> they are shedding his blood mind you. The sole objective of their meeting was to secure evidence to shed his blood. But we mustn't put the money in the treasury. Uh, that has uh, got him into our hands. Religious scruples. Oh my friend, church history is filled with such pictures. They 
removed. Whether it's the Inquisition, or whether it's some of the other rotten things found in Protestant quarters, in various places, it doesn't matter. Church history is filled with this kind of religious scruple. They are straining at the gnat and swallowing the camel. And then verse 7. See, my dear friends, see their charitable use of the money. Oh, they were the dispensers of charity. Listen to them. So they took counsel. That is, they brought in the doctors of the law. These learned gentlemen... They brought in and took counsel and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. So charitable. Now it may not mean a lot to you, but what it means is this. They purchased a field just outside Jerusalem with this money in Judas's name. Now make sure that they didn't buy it in their own name. Not their they, they, they knew this money belonged to Judas. See? So they said, he's thrown it down very well. We, he won't have later found out he'd committed suicide. So they said, all right, then we'll take this money and we'll buy in his name this field and we'll use it as a cemetery. It was really a kind of pauper cemetery, for wonder, because in jury, no, it was the most terrible disgrace and honour and brought a terrible curse upon yourself if any even far, 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 far distant relative was left untended for when they died. So whenever anyone died, some relative, even distantly removed, was uh, hurried onto the scene and paid for the uh, burial, a decent burial uh, and funeral. But you see, there were, of course, the unfortunate uh, um, strangers who were in Jerusalem. Maybe they'd come from Spain or Gaul or Rome or or North Africa, or farther away still. And they died, and they had no relatives. Now what are we to do with them? Well, now look, we've got the money. Thirty pieces of silver, we'll buy this field, and we shall use it for charitable uh, purposes. And every time uh, one of these people dies, and there's no kith and kin, we will um, bury him uh, in this field. What a picture. What a picture of formal and official religion holding a form of godliness when it holds a form of godliness and denies the power thereof. All this was the fulfillment of Zechariah 11, verse 12 and 13, and Jeremiah 32, verses 6 to 9. Well, now we must end. Peter's repentance came from a godly sorrow it led to restoration and to a ministry which was to shape the world. Judas's remorse came from self. It led to suicide and everlasting shame. That is the difference. Repentance is a Godless sorrow working. Remorse is purely self. 
It has no concern for others. It is only the concern to disentangle itself from the consequences. And that's all that was worrying Jews. It was the consequences. Uh, I, I betrayed innocent blood. It was the consequences of it that worried him. Not the Lord. The consequences for himself. It was remorse. You know what he could have done? I tell you what he could have done. He could have fled to Parliament and stood there before Parliament and exposed the trickery of the Sanhedrin. But he knew they wouldn't help him. So he went out and hanged himself. He was so afraid of the consequences. A terrible picture. One went out and wept his way into the light of glory. That's Peter. The other went out and wept his way into the blackness of darkness. Let then the fear of God fall upon every one of us. For if we should take comfort from the, the story of Peter. Let us take warning from the story of Judas. There are still many Judases amongst us. They bide their time. But they always come out into the open in the end. You, some of you have read the little story, Come Wind, Come Weather, which is the story of the church in China. Listen to this. On the 30th of June, 1950, a representative group of Christian leaders were summoned to the YMCA building in Shanghai to hear a report of, a, of a, an historic meeting in Peking between four church leaders. Who were they? Mr. Wu, manager and editor of the Association Press, YMCA. Mr. Liu, secretary of the National YMCA. Reverend Sui, general secretary of the Church of Christ in China. And the Reverend George Wu, general secretary of the National Christian Council. Mr. Wu then presented what he called the Church Manifesto. The broad terms of this document will be drawn up during the conference in May by the Premier and the delegation. The document pledged the Christian Church to rid itself of all traces of imperialism, to give its first loyalty to the people's government, and to maintain unquestioning obedience to the Communist Party. Judas's. It was Mr. Wu who set in motion the uh, forces that finally brought Wang Mingdao to trial and he's still in prison and Watchman Nee to trial and he's still in prison. Listen to this. First president of the Three Self Movement was Mr. Wu himself. During the late war with Japan he became anti-nationalist and pro-communist even taking part in several movements which aimed at the overthrow of the nationalistic government. His enthusiasm for the communists grew after the war and he became an ardent student of communist theory. This is a Christian man and vice president of the World Council of Churches up to the, to the last world war. Listen. His known sympathy for the communists' key position in the YMCA made Mr. Wu an obvious government choice to head up the three-self movement. 
This organization was designed to operate in relation to the Protestant churches, etc., etc. Writing in Heavenly Wind for the 30th of June, 1958, under the title My Recognition of the Communist Party, Mr. Wu says, Without the Communist Party, there would not have been the three-self movement of the Christian Church, nor the new life of the Church, and we Christians would not have received education in socialism, would not have received education, would, and, and the opportunity to change our political standpoint and become one with the people as we march happily on the road to socialism. I love the Communist Party. For over a hundred years, imperialism has been using the Christian Church to advance its aggressive designs, and so on, and so on. Can you believe it? This book is a book called I Was a Communist Prisoner by a Man Loved and Known by Us All, Haralan Proper. And in his trial, he says in these words, Pastor Mikhailov proved to be an important witness against all of the pastors. His testimony would have been sufficient to condemn us to death. And then Pastor Pop, uh, uh, um, Harlan Popov, of course, as you know, was the leader of the Pentecostal churches in, in Bulgaria. And he says of the man who was designated to take over from him, Angel Dinov, was immediately selected by the communists to be president of Pentecostal congregations. During the whole time of his arrest, it seemed as though he was being prepared for the task. They had found him suitable to be the leader of the Pentecostal congregations and an instrument for the communist ideology. It was quite evident that he was a faithful supporter. Judas says, let the fear of God come upon us all. Every one of us. There are still Judases amongst us, ready to sell Christ and to sell his people if it's worth it. These, whilst consorting with true children of God, taking on the phraseology and the behavior of the children of God, indulging in an outward uh, and superficial reformation, remain unregenerate. In the end, they go out from us because they are not of us. This is a solemn warning that every one of us should make our calling and election sure. Peter Judas. Wang Ming Dao was tried and put in prison. And after he'd been in prison for 18 months, he signed a confession and denied his Lord. His confession was published on the front page of many of China's daily newspapers. And he was freed and allowed to return to his church. But when he signed his confession, and he and his wife went free. They found they had exchanged a prison for a spiritual hell. 
day and night. Wang Mingdao said later, it was as if he lived in the flames of hell. For one year, he went, he couldn't preach, he couldn't pray. People saw him walking around like a demented man saying, I am Peter, I am Peter, I am Judas. A friend who had been in his home and came to us later told us that over the door was written, Peter. That's all. He put it up over the door. After one year, he went back to the police station, he and his wife, and they said they wished to withdraw their confession. Communist authorities were startled, but they withdrew it. And from that day to this, both of them have been in prison. I take it that they are at peace. There is a little book in the library called A Cloud of Witnesses, which I'm afraid you can't borrow. <laughs> for it is one of the first editions and we have only half of it <laughs> and it's a valuable book but it records the last words of the martyrs uh, called Lollards I remember once when I read through and of course I was trying to read a little bit of it today I was going to read a little bit of it but I'm afraid I just couldn't read it uh, I remember some years ago when reading it being tremendously struck by one or two cases that had recanted and by the recanting they had saved themselves from burning being burnt at the stake but they lived in such hell spiritually that in every case they withdrew their confession, their recantation, and they went to the flame. And it moved me greatly to hear what they said as they were burned. One of them called it his wedding day. Another one said he had never known such peace in his life. You see, when there is a true faith in us, there is ground for God to bring us through, even when we fail. But where there is just formalism, there is no hope. Peter, Judas. Peter went out and wept. Judas went out and hanged himself. Shall we pray? Dear Lord, we pray that thou wouldst use this study to comfort every one of us and to warn every one of us that in the days that lie ahead we may have a true faith, a living faith, through which thou canst, Lord, bring us through every trial and, and difficulty. 
and we ask it in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Amen.